Hi, my name is Alienor Summon, and I beat the often path by choosing happiness and dancing around the world. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories help us think outside the box in our lives and careers, and today is the perfect exemplification of that. We've got Alianora Salmon in the house, and she's a French-British author, speaker, and consultant, and the author of the book Finding Rhythm. She's also the creator of Bailando Journey. Now, if ever there was a story that fits the premise of this show, it's hers. She graduated from King's College in London with a master's degree in war studies. Then she worked as a field researcher in Mongolia, and then she landed her dream job studying happiness for UNESCO in Bangkok where she lived for many years. As if that wasn't enough, she decided to drop her job in pursuit of her own happiness, setting out to learn the local dances of eight Latin American countries in eight months. Well, she called this her Bailando journey, and Bailando is, of course, dancing in Spanish, and she ended up learning 18 dances over 10 months on one epic trip that changed her life forever. So I know you're going to be super inspired by her story. I certainly am. And here's Alianor Salmon. Well, welcome to the show, Alianor. How do you pronounce that again? Alianor. Alianor. That is a beautiful name and last name too. What is the origin of that name? So Alianor is actually the original version of Eleanor. Um, it Ooh. comes from 12th century France. Um, I'm named after a duchess who then became queen of France and later became queen of England. And because I'm half French, half English, I was named after her. And my last name, which reads in English as salmon, is actually my French last name, which is Salmon. But why not? I love salmon, the color, food. So this is my yeah. ignorance here. Does it mean the same thing in French or is it something totally no, it different? Doesn't. Like car? It actually doesn't. Um, that's the, the peculiar thing. In French, uh, salmon, the fish, is saumon with a U. Um, but if you want to go back in history, you could argue that maybe it actually did come from England when there was a 100-year war between England and France. So it's all a mystery to be I solved. I see. Well, it's a good tie-in then and very representative of where you ended up, I think, with your career and your strange meandering twists and turns to a new path. Um, so tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about, broadly speaking, the journey that you have taken, which is, from an outside view, a wild one. How did you end up where you are and what steps did you take? Wow. So it all began um, when I was basically in my dream job with my dream life in Bangkok, Thailand, working for the UN as a happiness researcher. Um, I really couldn't really have asked for a more perfect life. Um, however, the more I studied happiness, the more I realized that I wasn't actually happy. Um, Oof. So I also lost three people I cared about very deeply in the space of six months, and I was experiencing grief, heartbreak, and also the first signs of burnout. Um, now, looking back, I'm really grateful for that pain that I went through because I needed that to propel me into making a decision that would completely change my life. So as I was in this kind of numb, almost burning out phase, I, I thought, what would spark joy in me again? What would bring that flame back into my heart? And so ironically, I was writing the conclusion of a report on happiness in schools. And I thought, well, how, how can this be? I'm so unhappy. And here I am writing a publication for the UN on happiness. This is not right. That's hilarious. Um, and so I was with a friend and I said to her, what would you do if you could do anything? 
And she said, ah, oh, I'd swim with whales in Papua New Guinea. So, oh, okay. And she said, what about you? And then it dawned on me that I hadn't even taken a moment to really think about this. So I thought, okay, what would I do? And of course, we always put limits in front of our dreams. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I have too many responsibilities. It won't work out. But let's just allow ourselves to remove those limits just for one minute. And what, what could I come up with? So I closed my eyes. I looked inside my heart. I really thought, okay, what would I do? And who would I be with in what environment? And because I love languages, I, I speak Spanish. I have done since I was a teenager and I, I love speaking Spanish. It's a, a language that makes me feel very alive. So I thought, okay, I want to feel alive. I want to feel free. I'll be speaking Spanish. Um, I'd be in Latin America. I'd be outside in the streets. I would reverse this desk hunch posture to open Ooh, myself yeah. to the world. That's good. Because we're constantly seeing like this. I and know. I thought, yeah. What could I do to make my, my shoulders roll back and not be in this hunch while speaking Spanish and being in the streets and in Latin America? And I always had this idea that Latin Americans are happier despite having circumstances that are probably worse off than some countries, um, like political stability or corruption, for instance, to name but a few. And it dawned on me, I'm like, music and dance are at the center of how they celebrate life in the most simple way. So I thought, okay, I would quit my job and I would learn how to dance. So my friend asked, okay, what dance would you learn and where? And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I'd start with tango in Buenos Aires because in Argentina, because that's kind of a more common dance trip to take. But then I thought, oh, but you know, I've been taking some bachata lessons. Maybe I'd want to go to Dominican Republic. Mm. Okay, well, if I'm going to do that, I really dream of going to the Rio Carnival one day. Uh, okay, but if I do all this dance itinerary in Latin America, I have to also learn salsa. But which type of salsa? New York salsa, Puerto Rican salsa, Cuban salsa, Colombian salsa, all of them. In the end, I came up with the idea of eight countries, eight months, eight dances. This was my goal. Um, and I was really trying to limit it. But of course, things don't always work out the way that you think. And I ended up learning 18 dances in eight countries Ooh. in 10 months. Uh, not necessarily out of my own will, but I, I, I was open and allowing locals to take me wherever they wanted. And that's how I ended up on what I call my bailando journey. Bailando means dancing in Spanish. Um, and this whole journey is documented in my book, Here, Finding Rhythm, An International that Dance is. Journey. Um, and it completely changed my life. That's incredible. So before that, you were studying happiness, which is, again, one of the great ironies of all time. Is the answer when studying happiness, it's always Bhutan, isn't it? Wasn't that all? They always say that Bhutan is the happiest country on earth. Have you heard that? Did you find that? Yeah, and actually we worked with the government of Bhutan in our project. Um, they have really great initiatives for happiness in schools and in children. They have educating for GNH, Gross National Happiness, um, they have meditation in schools. They have a strong sense of, of care for the environment and a big emphasis on skills like social and emotional skills, which actually, if you want to teach happiness, it's about developing these social and emotional skills. Now, in terms of what country is the happiest, that's a difficult one because you've got a number of different rankings and they're all using different criteria. But there's one thing that I don't necessarily agree with a lot of these rankings is they still use a lot of economic factors like gross domestic product 
or for instance, clean air. Um, and the places where I have seen the most joy in people often rank really low because they don't have political stability or they have corruption or they have high levels of crime. So happiness is subjective, even when it comes to measuring it in a country. Um, but it's really interesting because I truly believe that everyone has their own unique definition of happiness. Um, and I also do believe that it is possible to be happy with very little. And actually the greatest happiness does come from those very kind of elusive things like warm human connection, um, engaging to music and dance and being creative and just simply being yourself. Mm. Do you think that, I mean, because the other, the other stereotypes, always the Scandinavian countries, they always come out yeah. super high on that. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, again, you have to think what criteria and what variables were used to calculate um, those countries. I mean, of course, if you look at equality in terms of wages, in terms of access to healthcare, access to education, of course, it's, it's much more equal and fair as, as a society. Um, in terms of expression of joy and, and, and enjoyment of life, I mean, First of all, I have to say, I have not been to Scandinavia, so I don't think that I'm in a position to judge. I would want to read loads of books. I sure. do think there's really interesting theories from Denmark, for instance, on Higa, um, and this coziness and word. warmth. Yeah. Um, but again, yeah, it depends how you're measuring it. Well, the way that I measure it is, how can you most effectively decorate a 300-meter-squared room with IKEA furniture? That, to me, is happiness. It's got to be painted white with the same coffee machine. These are the things that represent happiness, or is IKEA full of shit? Well, if you ask me, I do really like putting together IKEA furniture, but it's yeah, not actually about the IKEA furniture. It's, it's about having fun joke. building something with my hand, <laughs> right. not being on my phone, yes. and being completely engrossed in an activity where I feel I'm building something. And I think that's a really good example to give because we don't spend that much time building things or creating things. And I really do believe that you don't need to do a trip around the world to find happiness, but definitely putting more time aside to create and make things, whether it's a meal or whether it's woodwork or a painting, it's about feeling that you are doing something with your hands. Mm, yeah, completely agree. And I think a lot of people have felt what you felt, not in quite the same environment, which we'll get to in a minute, but people who are trapped in a job that they don't like in a corporate environment, they know that they're not happy. They know that there's some part of them that wants to breathe free and it's not happening. Now, maybe they don't hit it quite as on the nose as literally studying happiness while they come to those realizations. But at the time when you were studying happiness, like you said, there are different factors that we can use to judge this. Were there things that stood out in that moment in Bangkok that really made you feel like I'm on the wrong path here? Were there things that you say, say I'm looking at research and it suggests I should be doing this as I'm hunched over my computer, not doing mm -hmm. any of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, I, was really, I was really studying happiness in schools and in children. And I think children are really teachers for us, especially young children. They can really teach us a lot about happiness. And the more I was looking at what we should you know, tell schools to do, the more I thought that as adults, we really need this too. And I started to think about what happiness looked like 
to me, based on being able to cultivate values and based on the science of happiness, positive psychology, you have the 24 character strengths. Um, I felt that I was not able to cultivate them that more, that, that much anymore. Um, and I wanted to just spend more time outside. So actually in the recommendations of happy schools, it was allow children to, to play outside. And, and I was thinking, well, here I am as an adult in a cubicle. I want to play outside. And, and until this day, spending time outside is one of the biggest ways that I cultivate joy. And most of the time it's free. I go for a walk along the river in Lisbon, which I absolutely love. Um, I really try sometimes to do this walk with no podcast, no music, nothing, just a walk. And it always grounds me. I always feel this state of contentment, just peace. It's not a jump for joy moment, but it's a, like everything is great. You know, I'm, I'm really fulfilled just the way things are. What, what is interesting to me is I've read a number of books. I think it was Thinking Fast and Slow. There's a number of these business books or things mm. that have been popular lately. And they'll say things like, your location does not matter when it comes to happiness. You'll be just as happy in Cleveland, Ohio, as you would be in Portugal or the south of Spain, Mediterranean or Southern California. I love being outside as well. It's a huge, huge source of happiness for me. And for me, being warm and being in a nice climate is a major part of that. Do you believe that it's really unrelated that you can just be freezing in a, in a cave somewhere and you're just as happy? Oof. I mean, I wouldn't have statistics to back that up immediately. I mean, for sure, we all need vitamin D and sun exposure. And it's not surprising that most people when they are in a position to choose a better life, go to warmer places um, with more sunshine because it does affect your mood. I, I can, from my own experience, I can personally say that when it's very gray and cloudy, which believe it or not can happen sometimes in Portugal as well, my mood instantly drops. Now, I do think that as human beings, we have the capacity to create happiness anywhere and in any circumstances. Um, of course, having lovely weather makes it a shortcut and makes it maybe easier. But if you were to take the concept of Higa from Denmark, for instance, having a nice warm fire and roasting marshmallows might make a cold environment quite nice too. So maybe it just means working a little harder. Um, but there is always a way mm. that I really believe in. Yeah, I believe that too. And people have said that to me living in California. They say, don't you miss seasons? Don't you miss fall and all of the things you just described? And I said, no, <laughs> I just want to be in a hammock 24-7, 365. That's the only thing that I care about. I don't care if I ever see another season again, but I recognize that I'm not the only, <laughs> that I'm unique in that regard. Other people do not feel that way. Um, but you come from, you said, French, British. You already are a melting pot of cultures to begin your life. And you say you were living your dream career, but you were in Bangkok, Thailand. So how on earth did you end up there to start all of this before you left there to go to this Latin America journey? Well, that's a good question. So after I finished my studies, my background is in politics and international relations. My master's is in war studies, believe it or not. I studied war not because I, I like war, because I wanted to learn how to prevent wars. Yeah. And so as the more that I studied war, I, I started seeing, you know, you have what they call hard power and soft power. And on the soft power side, I saw how incredibly important education and culture could be 
in preventing wars. And the more that I got into it, I got really interested in cultural diplomacy and the institution that is known for cultural diplomacy is UNESCO, where I would end up working years later, five years later without knowing at that time. Um, I actually initially went into human rights. I worked for major uh, human rights organizations. And then it was clear that if I wanted to progress in my career, I would need field experience. Uh, field experience in a country um, that was completely different because also I felt, what am I doing here in London, researching human rights conditions in places like Turkey or Sri Lanka? And I'm commenting about it as a, an analyst, but then if I'm not in those countries, how can I really know what's going on? And so I applied to um, a UK NGO called VSO, which is kind of like the Peace Corps, the British Peace Corps, except you don't go to teach, you go to take on a project. And I was under the, the minimum age was 25. I was 24 at the time, but I managed to get in and just before they closed their youth program. But they had a job that they weren't able, I think they weren't able to fill it or something, and I, I managed to get on it at 24. And they needed someone to go and do um, policy research on the education system in Mongolia. Now, I never would have imagined that the first country that I would live in after having lived in the UK my whole life, with of course a lot of time in France and in Spain, I never thought I would end up moving to Mongolia. Now, in terms of temperatures, that's a whole different story. We're talking like minus 30 degree Ooh. winters. It was an absolutely transformative experience. Okay. I sometimes look back at some of the memories and wonder if it was even real. Wow. Um, because some of the situations I ended up in were really uh, surprising, to say the very least. Um, but it was a really, really fascinating year of my life and a really formative year of my life. I lived in a country where I couldn't get things. I would spend two days looking for a broccoli. You know, I would, I would literally go from one export shop to the next trying to find basic things because it's too cold to grow most vegetables. So if I wanted a broccoli, I had to really go and look for it. Um, I started to value so much more um, what we have because when you're living in a, when you have less options, you develop gratitude, but also you become so much more creative. I had less ingredients to play with, so I cooked different things. I tried, I was more curious. Um, and so this year of my life was really, really special. I worked with a wonderful woman called Salman, um, uh, who was one of the first English teachers in Mongolia. And to, together we did this research on Mongolia's education system um, and the way that it was going forward. It was a really exciting time because um, this was in 2010. Mongolia's stock market, the smallest in the world, was, the, was soaring. Um, and, and people were very excited to see, like, the country was developing month by month. Even from the time I arrived to a year later, it was already different. And so when our research was published on the reform of education in Mongolia, it was so popular that actually UNESCO came and requested 10 copies of it, and everyone was asking for more information because there isn't that much information about Mongolia. And so after this huge success, um, the um, VSO came back to me and said, we'd really like you to do another project with us for another year. And I was offered two options, one in, in China and one in Thailand. I ended up going for the one in Thailand because it was working on um, early childhood in migrants from Myanmar 
who were living in Thailand and, and looking at how they were accessing basic benefits for their well-being. And that was another really incredible experience in the sense that I was really going out into the field through an interpreter, talking to families, to teachers, to schools, on the back of a motorbike, Whoa. in the jungle, going into fishermen villages that I wasn't even, I didn't even know they were controlled by mafias and I wasn't even allowed to go there, but I found out afterwards and I made it out alive. But that's when I realized through this work that my role as a researcher, and I, I believe that this continues to be my role today, is to capture people's stories and be a messenger to spread a message and bring it and, and just deliver this message. Um, and so being already in Thailand, I saw this incredible opportunity at UNESCO, didn't really think I had no contacts. I didn't get in through people I knew and suddenly I'm working at my dream organization, uh, working on peace and happiness and gender equality in education and uh, in, in one of the most vibrant cities in the Super world. amazing. And you said earlier, and I think we all have to say this, or we all feel that it must be true that you don't need to travel to experience these things, and yet travel is a common theme that we encounter time and again in people who find truly unusual and interesting career paths and life arcs. Do you really think that it's possible to sit in one place from birth until death and to have the kind of realizations that you had traveling around the world. And a, a corollary to that is the thought that you said, I couldn't talk about these people without actually knowing about them. I couldn't actually talk about them without going there. And you've said that a few times so far. I can't talk about Scandinavians without actually going there. But there's so much of that that we do in our society and our culture. We talk about, we judge other cultures. We think we know other cultures without actually mm -hmm. going there. So is it possible to have those kinds of realizations without actually going somewhere? I think that no, probably in most places in the world, there is a way to see life through someone else's eyes. Um, Something that I love during my travels is when I was talking, for instance, to Uber drivers or people who are often um, surrounded by, by tourists, they say to me, I travel the world through the people that get in yeah. my car. Yeah, fair. And they say, I, I'm not, I don't have the means to catch a flight, to go to Europe, to ever see these places, but people show me their photos. I get to know their personalities after X amount, you know, I, of people from different nationalities, I kind of get a better understanding. I think that we can be curious no matter where we live in the world. You know, for instance, here in Portugal, um, I can go and get to know immigrant communities from very different countries who are coming here and starting a new life and understanding what that's like for them. Or for instance, I have a very good friend from the Ukraine. I've been spending time with her and her friends to understand, well, how are they feeling? You know, I, I think that it's so important to have this empathy or this is this desire to understand what life is like for people who are not in our shoes, but at least trying to get into their shoes. Because when we see life from different perspectives, it really opens our mind and you don't necessarily need to travel for that. You know, you can just talk to someone that has a completely different life from you. And to add on to that, something that I loved about partner dancing in Latin America 
is I danced with people that I never would have met. So I'll give you the example of, of Mexico City. I was staying in a really hipster area where, you know, people had warned me, oh, Mexico City is so dangerous. But in my neighborhood, all I saw were designer dogs and lattes. Um, and, but then when I went to learn national folkloric dances, um, most of the students in the adult beginner class were in their 60s and 70s. And they didn't speak English. They were from other neighborhoods, probably more um, lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. But what I absolutely loved is I saw the world through their eyes by dancing with them. I never would have seen that if I just stuck to my hipster neighborhood. That's so profound. And I think you're right. There are ways of engaging with these communities. There are ways of embracing other cultures and other people around us, no matter where we are. That's absolutely true. And we'll talk about the, the dancing here in a second. You traveling through Mongolia, through Bangkok, you come to appreciate the things that you took for granted, like broccoli, other things. Uh, how did it change you in that first phase of that part of your travel before you set? Like, what do you think that you, what had changed inside of you living in Bangkok before you went to Latin America? Mm, that's a really great question because I was in Bangkok for five years. So I was one year in Mongolia, five years in Thailand, but working on the whole Asia Pacific. So I got to travel to anywhere from Malaysia to Sri Lanka to uh, South Korea to Azerbaijan. So I was really looking at the, at the whole region. Um, what I can absolutely say as a very clear change in me is I lost, um, I don't want to say I lost my temper. Like I, I, I used to have a bit of a temper or I would get angry or annoyed or the way that I would express my frustration or anger would maybe be a little definitely coming from my French side. And that totally disappeared. Why? Because in Thailand, when I arrived, I mean, we had excellent training. So we were really trained on the local culture. We had language lessons and we were told what you can and cannot do, which then after my NGO experience, going to the center of Bangkok with all these foreigners who don't speak a word of Thai, I was, I was mortified at seeing what a lot of foreigners are doing and what's really not okay in Thai culture. But one thing that's really interesting is if you want to work uh, with Thai people, um, that there's this whole thing of face saving. Like you don't want to lose face. One of the ways that you lose face is by being angry. Because based on their Buddhist beliefs, if you are angry, it means you are unable to regulate your emotions in a difficult situation. And you won't negotiate your way into anything. And it's kind of interesting because I've seen in France, for instance, when you complain or when you get a bit annoyed, you usually get something for free or you get something better. Same here. But there it does not work at all. It, it, people look at you really like, poor you, you're not able to, to keep yourself mm. together, basically. But they really taught me how to handle um, complicated situations in a calm and friendly um way and it really gave me a sense of peace somewhere i would say that 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 would be the biggest transformation that i had and a lot of patience of course i developed a I lot love of both patience. of those things what a profound insight that the only thing that you can do is to lose your temper that you feel pity for somebody who's unable to regulate their emotions that is super cool and also did you coin the phrase lose your temper because if not that's awesome that could be your next book <laughs> Oh, is that no. an existing um, thing? I think 
think it's an expression like if you lose your temper, it means like you're not no, able to No, I know, but think of the together. other meaning in the context of this conversation. Exactly, I lost yeah. my temper by embracing travel. See? Exactly. That's the kind of obscure, esoteric We're pun that we embrace on this show. <laughs> the sort of, huh? Yeah, write like that down. Um, I think that's super cool. It makes perfect sense. So now let's get into the big, the meat and potatoes of this whole thing, the Bailando journey itself. So it blossomed. Now, many people, again, these ideas have been popularized. I think ever since Eat, Pray, Love became popular, people have romanticized the idea of all I need to do is just take a year off or do one thing and then uh, these pieces of my life will magically fall into place kind of thing. But that, for many people, is a dream that they never achieve. They don't take that step that they need to actually do something like that. So what did you do to actually prepare for that? And how did you actually begin the process of going? Another great question. So, of course, this was a terrifying decision for me. I was leaving behind a career that I dreamed of at its very height. Um, it was a big risk. I sold all my things. I was leaving behind my friendships, um, a really great life. I didn't know what would come out from, from this journey. But I would say what, made, what helped me go through is I, I, have a, um, I have a framework of the path to happiness that I really like to use in my talks. It's also in my, in my free happiness workbook and in my new course, Redefine Your Happiness. But it's the same kind of steps. And... That's, I mean, a lot of those lessons I kind of figured out after the journey, but part of them were when I look back, what helped me go through with it and actually take the leap were those exact steps. First, I'd understood what happiness really was because I'd been studying it. Second, I changed my definition of success. I thought, well, for me, when I look back at my life, I want to know that I had this year rather than just a promotion or pay rise. Then I, I wanted to really allow myself to think beyond limits. So that's how I came up with the idea. I allowed myself to dream beyond the usual limits of I don't have the time, I don't have the money. Then I had to really overcome the fears. And this one was a really tricky one. I was worried. I mean, I, I, it's not like it was just easy, you know. I actually saved for a year. Um, I submitted my notice three months in advance, even though it only had to be one month, but I really wanted to wrap things up nicely and give people, give my supervisor loads of time to find someone new. Um, but of course I was terrified. What if I end up jobless? What if no one ever hires me again? What if no one takes me seriously after, you know, I'd just given a keynote among the biggest happiness experts in the U S and now here I am being like, okay, Later. now I'm going to dance. Like, will anyone even, Take me seriously as a researcher again or as a professional. What if I end up homeless, you know? What if I, what if I end up getting in danger on the road? I, I imagined all these things, but I was so determined. And, and also, I, again, I would say that I was propelled by the pain of the sadness that I was feeling. And that took away a lot of fear. And if you, if you think about people that embark on these kind of extreme journeys, often they feel like they have nothing mm. to lose. Their, their pain or their sadness is so great that they're like, yeah, who cares? I'll just go for it. So then I really had this desire to be in my body. 
um, and I had to make this big choice and basically choose a new way of living. So that's basically the whole steps um, of the path to happiness. Um, but of course, it, it wasn't an, an easy one. Um, but I have to say, I look back and I have absolutely Amazing. no regrets. That is such a great, great story. So you buy your plane ticket. You've got it all planned out. You think, I'm going to do eight dances in eight months, which, like you said, blossomed into 18 and 10. So when you touch down, I'm sure that you landed in the airport. Where did you land first? So the first place, um, well, I went back to Europe for a few weeks, see my family. But my first destination okay. was New York. To learn the indigenous dances of New York City? <laughs> Well, believe it or not, New York is the best place of I, I guess I do. I, like, they're probably the best place of a thousand things. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, people end up in a whole debate. Um, the origins of salsa are not necessarily from New York, but the place where the term salsa was coined was actually New York in the 1970s with the big band era and the funnier all-stars. Um, and, you know, I had this vision. I'd watched all these documentaries to prepare for my trip, and I had this vision of, of these, you know, Spanish Harlem nightclubs, like there was one called the Cheetah, and then there's another club called the Palladium, and and imagining people wearing their best clothes to go out and dance, and this was before it was taught in classes, you know. Um, but also there were some really interesting offshoots and spin-offs of salsa that happened in New York because different immigrant communities mixed with each other. And what I found absolutely fascinating was how every single dance tells you a story of its people and of its country. And actually, if you look at 1960s, 1970s New York, it is reflected in those dances. Ooh. So that's where it all began. And I assume that you had done a fair bit of research then on the types of dances you were expecting to find, because I, did you know all of that stuff before you landed in New York or did you discover that along the way? So as far as possible, I tried to watch documentaries and read books before going, but um, it wasn't possible to, I, I definitely did, I'd say, more research on on what I could find, really. So I found this great documentary about New York, and I found a really great one about samba in Brazil. And then I just listened to the music and tried to find as much information as possible. I took some beginner classes. I had a great teacher in, in Bangkok who had trained in New York and who had shared some insights with me. And he's the one who told me, okay, you need to listen to the Funny at All Stars. You need to watch this documentary, um, which is, I can't remember what it's called, but it's something like spinning mambo into hip hop or something. I, I, I can't really remember. Um, but really great documentary. Um, of course, a lot of the things, I mean, I picked each dance that I planned to learn based on its country of origin and its significance in the country and also based on the dances that I liked and really wanted to learn. Um, but there's this whole social history behind each of them that is just completely mind-blowing. And the fact that with our bodies we can make movements that represent decades or even hundreds of years of history just still continues to fascinate me. I mean, it's just such a novel and cool idea. So from New York, what was what was the list? What was the sequence from there for the next 10 months? So I started in New York, where I learned uh, New York-style salsa. I uh, also experimented with some cha-cha-cha and boogaloo and a little bit of pachanga. 
which are the offshoots that I was mentioning earlier. Then I went on to Mexico City. And in Mexico City, I wanted to learn the national dance called the Jarabe Tapatio, also known as the Mexican mm. hat dance. It is without a doubt one of the most difficult dances Whoa. I've ever learned. I also, I was in two different dance schools. So honestly, if, if, if you read my book, Finding Rhythm, you, you will wonder if I made some of this up and I assure <laughs> you that I didn't. But I was so open and receptive that all these incredible things started lining up for me, things that you just wouldn't even believe. So I called the National Ballet, the National Folkloric Ballet of Amalia Hernandez, which performs in the Bayas Artists Theatre. It is the most prestigious Mexican dance ballet. And their school director agreed to take me on and teach me how to learn the awesome. national dance. Um, I, I couldn't believe it that I was just trying. I, I was calling everyone up. I was sending messages on people's Facebook pages. And I just didn't expect. They were like, we really like your story. You've left everything for dance. We want." I said, look, I have a limited time. I have a few weeks. Can I learn it in a few weeks? They were like, we're going to teach you it. And I am so grateful to them. Um, and then I was also in another school where I was learning regional dances from different states of Mexico. And then again, th this is where I was with my, my dance, um, friends who were all much like double my age, basically two times my age, but I made really good friends with them. And, um, they told me, well, actually every year for the school's anniversary, we have a performance in front of, it's going to be a big audience. I was in front of a thousand people and well, you've been taking classes, so would you like to be in the performance? So I ended up dancing on stage in traditional costume. I was the only foreigner, but I felt so accepted and so welcome. And I couldn't believe it. Like I was even learning, a, I had to sing a song in Zapoteco, which is a, an indigenous language from the state of Oaxaca. And I thought, I remember singing it on stage and thinking, how did I end up in this situation? But I was so open to it um, that it all just happened. And then... So after Mexico, I went to Cuba. Uh, in Havana, I learned Cuban salsa. I also learned son and cubaton, which is kind of like a, regga a Cuban reggaeton. Um, then I went to Dominican Republic. I learned bachata and merengue. And then I went to Puerto Rico because I really wanted to learn reggaeton. But I found out that they had a huge salsa scene that was way more popular than reggaeton, even though this is, we're talking like two months before the song oh Despacito goodness. came <laughs> okay. when I was there. And I actually danced. Um, there's a photo of me dancing with this old man in the place where they filmed Get the music video here. for this. Was it a theater, right? Um, Some kind of small theater. That was that what? It, what was it? Uh, where did they film it? I, it's been a long. Oh, a bar. It's a bar. Yeah. I've seen it, but it's been many years. Yeah. With a really nice tiled floor. Um, so all these kind of random things keep happening. Then I went on to Colombia. Uh, and in Colombia, I really wanted to learn two dances. I wanted to learn the national dance, which is Colombian cumbia. And I wanted to learn salsa caleña, which is Cali style salsa. It's got the really fast feet and knees. Actually, Jennifer Lopez trains with schools from Cali. Um, and I have to say, it is one of my cool. favorite styles of all time. Um, and then after Colombia, I went to Brazil where I learned uh, carnival style samba. I paraded with a school. I then ended up parading again because they were in the top six and they sent me on top of the float, which just because one dancer was missing and they needed someone to go up and I couldn't believe it. I mean, imagine so many people singing and, and going through this audience. It was just another one of these pinch me now moments. Um, I also learned a, a dance called Forho 
and uh, couple samba, samba gigafiera. And finally, I ended up in Argentina where I learned the tango, which was a dance that I put way more time aside for. It took me two months. It's a really difficult dance. But then talking to Uber drivers who were, I like to call them my spirit guides <laughs> on this journey because they really gave me all the, all the insights. And they said, well, you know, tango is really something from the Mar del Plata region, like the, 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 open, the Buenos Aires and part of Uruguay area. They said, you know, in, for Argentina in general, the dance that we consider to be the national dance is a folkloric dance called La Chacarera. So off I go to the northwest of Argentina, to the land of gauchos, and end up on a patio dancing around horse saddles, uh, learning La Chacarera with an actual gaucho and going out to taverns. And, and well, what can I say? It was every time I, I go through this journey, I can't help but smile because... I will look back and think that those were some of the most incredible memories. How could you not? Every, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just hearing about this. This is basically bringing me to tears, and I didn't even do it. It just sounds so cool. Uh, and the other thing, you know, certainly here in the L.A. area in Southern California, we have a large Latin American community, and one of the giant criticisms of the world at large and certainly Americans at large is, the lumping together of all of Latin America, and there are many people who who don't like that, obviously, even with the terms Latinx and various other groupings, but you now are intimately familiar with the differences of these specific cultures and what is unique to them and what they value in a way that probably very few people really are unless they deliberately set out to do something like this. Do you think that's true? Well, I comment because I'm not in the US and and one thing I can see is I can imagine that the situation for Latin communities in the US is very different than Latin people in their own country. Absolutely. Their perspective might yeah. be different. Something we were very concerned about with my publishers, we really, you know, we were prepared for questions about cultural appropriation. Like was I going and wearing mm. people's cultures by dancing it? But what's interesting is that was a and I'm not American, so I'm really looking out outside. Like it seemed like a very American concern to me because the reality is as a foreigner going to Mexico, I was so welcome. People were literally, let me dress you, come join yeah. me, let me teach you. I was and continue to consider myself a humble student of them. They were my teachers. I was learning from them. I had a curiosity and a desire to understand their perspective and their way of life. And I think that that is probably the key. I completely agree. And that's just, that's just traveling and being a good traveler in general. It's about celebrating the culture. It's not about imposing your beliefs on another culture. It's about being open to what their beliefs are and letting them wear off on you. That's the way I've always seen it. That's the best, most beautiful part of travel in general. I think it's just fabulous yeah. that you opened yourself up and that you, you let... You left space for the chaos because very few people do that when they plan these sorts of things. They plan, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go to this water park, I'm going to go on this kayak adventure, I'm going to rent a sailboat here. Every minute is scheduled or planned or in a hotel somewhere. Very few people because it, it takes bravery to say, I'm going to let the situation dictate where I need to go and I'm not going to place my beliefs on what should happen here. I'm just going to let them tell me, what do I need to know next? Where do I need to go? I thought I was going to learn the tango, but what I actually am going to learn is this other thing and I'm going to dance with some gaucho. 
So uh, that's the kind of travel that I think is the most meaningful and the most impactful. And my favorite memories of my life of travel are when I did the same, when I put myself at the mercy of somebody else. And and there is risk to doing that. There is danger to doing that or perceived risk or perceived danger. Sometimes you get really far off the beaten path and you say, boy, if I didn't have this guide or this person, I'd really be in trouble. But the desire for everybody to show you their culture and their country, I've found everywhere I've been has been so strong and people have always wanted to take care of you. And they say, let me show you what we're all about. Because again, it's just so much harder to judge. It's so much harder to hate people if you get to know them. It's so much harder to group them together if you get to know them on an individual basis and learn what they care about. So I, I applaud you for doing that. I think it's awesome, really. I really like what you said about this um, understanding. I mean, if we if we go all the way back to when I was doing my master's and I, I was looking at soft power and how cultural and educational activities can prevent wars. And what you said about, but if you get to know someone individually, how can you hate them? And that's what I think is something that we really need to work in on our societies, especially societies that do have large immigrant communities. I mean, we go to their country and we're received so well. And then when they come, they're not received in with wide open arms and come and learn about afternoon tea, you know, like, no, right. it's not the same uh, reception. And I think that we need to put ourselves into kind of question ourselves on that a little bit. Um, I do think the desire to understand others, the curiosity through, it could be cultural things, through their films, through their food, through their art, um, is a way of developing understanding and, and, and kind of like the psyche of a culture and, and, and how they operate, but also what they can teach us. I mean, what I absolutely love is because I've, I've lived outside of the UK now or on and off um, for so long that I have gotten a little bit of a, of a kind of print on me from all these, you know, I have been very much influenced by Thailand in terms of emotional regulation and this way of negotiation. I learned that from five years there. Um, I've been very influenced by Mexico, which is the country I ended up going back to for a while. Um, the way that people are so open with their emotions. You know, when you That's see true. an older man talking about how he does things with a big open heart, just casually saying this in daily words, why are we not all speaking like this? Why are we repressing our emotions to try and look you know, successful and professional when actually we're human beings with feelings. Yeah. And and I have to say, Mexicans really taught me that. Yeah. That's so true. And shout out quickly to a lot of people on my team are from Mexico. So team Mexico for the win. I'm on the bandwagon for sure. They're going to really appreciate <laughs> this clip. So we're going to chop it up and send it to them. Um, Oh, yes, do. no, open hearts, and, and beautiful, beautiful people and a beautiful culture that I, I really, really love. Um, you know, I guess, so the the detail in all of this is, or maybe the footnote almost, is the dancing at a certain point. I'm sure that the cultural experience and the journey and the spiritual journey is the real takeaway. But after just 10 months of dancing all the time, how did you feel? Did you get much better at dancing? Did you start to connect some of the steps? Was your technique better across the board? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went from... There were a lot of emotional blockages when I look at how comfortable I felt dancing a salsa 
Um, and in my book, you can kind of see the pro progression. When you get to the Cuba chapter, I'm really terrified of dancing uh, with my teacher and I'm, I'm so terrified of my mistakes. And this journey really taught me how to get used to imperfection. I'm just gonna make mistakes all the time because if I don't make mistakes, I'm never gonna get the dance step right. And I real that's when I realized that we are constantly sheltering ourselves from mistakes. We think we should be perfect all the time. But actually, that's not the way that life is. Uh, I mean, dancing is a metaphor for life. Um, and the amount of steps that I thought, I can't do it, I just can't do it. And I would do it over and over and over and over again until maybe after the 1,000th time, I could do it. And I remember thinking, what happened with my brain? One second, I couldn't do this, and now I suddenly can. And I was absolutely amazed at the potential for human intelligence through dance and all the different forms of intelligence that we can use. And there's a theory that I love called the theory of multiple intelligences by Howard Gardner, who is a professor at Harvard. You use every single one in dance. It's insane, really. Um, but beyond that, in terms of the skill, um, people always ask me, but didn't you confuse all the different dances with each other? And actually, no, each dance reinforces the other. I thought, oh, if I want to do a good twist like that in salsa, I'll use the back work that I did in tango. And like there was, I was borrowing from, from everywhere to kind of like, help me uh, strengthen myself. But each dance taught me about a different part of my body and muscles I didn't even know I had. Um, I was also really shocked at how much physical energy I had to the point that even my teachers were exhausted of me. Like I could dance three hours nonstop a day. And they were like, look, even the professionals do like maximum two hours if they're training for a show. This is too much. Like, please go home. But I was just so into it. I, I couldn't stop. It was, it was fueling me. And I see so much progress in, in, my, in my dancing. And I do think that because there were so many dancers, I didn't become like professional level in one. I'm like a solid beginner in a, quite a lot and then intermediate in a few. But enough to actually just rock up. My goal here was never to become a good dancer. My goal was to enjoy dancing and to feel completely free and alive and find happiness. And as long as I was enjoying it, that was all that really mattered. So yep. that's the goal. They say dance to express, not to impress. Brilliant words of advice for just about anything in life. Obviously, just whatever you're doing, do it to express, not to impress. And I think we'll all be a lot happier. And I think it's interesting. We've seen a lot of shows about travel, about cooking. We know that food is a path because these things bypass our logic. They bypass our reasoning and our higher faculties. Food is a deep emotional experience. But so is music and dance. You can't fake it. And by going to a cherished cultural dance you are going straight to the core of people's essence because there's no pageantry, there's no dress up around. It's just, this is what I feel. This is what's in my heart. This is what I've had memories of for decades or centuries or potentially even thousands of years. So you're just bypassing all of these mechanisms that are put in place as barriers between us if we have an argument or a discussion or anything like that. And you say, no, I'm going to get straight to the heart of it, literally. And the point about multiple intelligences is well-received and understood. And especially when you don't necessarily speak another language fluently, 
it's all the more important to find other means of connection. And that's something that I've been very fortunate to experience because my wife is half Costa Rican, half Dutch. We met in the Netherlands. I lived there for eight years. And when we met, her English was very good. Now it's perfect. But when we met, there was, of course, some cultural differences on the surface. But there was a language that we spoke and there was a commonality under that surface that connected us. And I only wish that more people could experience that feeling in their life. I really do. Because you might say, how can I truly connect with somebody if we don't speak the same language or we don't speak it well? Well, I'm going to tell you that you can. And it can be one of the most beautiful things in the entire world when you do. And I I wish it upon everybody that they experience that once or multiple times in their life. That is very well said. And I can, um, I mean, I was fortunate enough to, I speak fluent Spanish and, and I took Portuguese lessons, but actually there wasn't even a need to talk in some of these dances. What I found was so incredible. I remember dancing with this man who, Um, It was in a a group tango class in Buenos Aires. He was probably in his 60s and he had very shaky hands. I think he had, and he told me he had Parkinson's. And you have to rotate partners. And after the song, I I thought, well, there's no one else. I'll dance another one with you. And he said, no, find someone your age. I'm old. I'm ill. Like, why would you waste your time dancing with me? And I said, no, I'm going to dance with you. And it's, it's really, it's, it's a moment that I describe in my book. I remember just feeling his hand shaking in mine and just slowly stabilizing. We didn't talk for that whole song, but we were so connected and I accepted him for everything that he was. Even though he was an older man, he was sick. But for that song, there was this kind of codified, silent respect and reverence and I think that that is so beautiful and I'm getting goosebumps as I say this because when I share a dance with someone and, and the connection is that pure and that beautiful you are literally sharing your body and your balance and your breath with someone for the time of a song how how could it get more human than that well I normally take this point in the show and I ask people to come up with a, a pithy thing to wrap it up or a word of wisdom or a piece of advice, but I think that what you just said is the best (laughs) closing to this episode I can possibly imagine. That's beautiful and extremely profound. And gosh, what a fun episode this has been. I've really enjoyed hearing about your story. And I hope that more people will go out there and buy your book. It is called Finding Rhythm. I hope that more people will learn about your adventure, but I want to leave the floor to you here to wrap this episode up. So please share whatever you want to share, direct people wherever you want to direct them. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you so much to your listeners to, for listening to my story. I hope that they feel inspired to choose happiness for themselves in whatever way that looks like or signing up to a dance class and and really enjoying life because it is so short and precious and we have to make the most of it. Um, I'd be delighted to stay in touch. I mostly hang out on Instagram. My handle is at Bailando Journey, B-A-I-L-A-N-D-O, Journey, Dance Journey, um, or Dancing Journey. My book is called Finding Rhythm, An International Dance Journey. And um, I have a free happiness workbook going through the path that we've just gone through. 
um, that uh, listeners are very welcome to download on my website. Um, and I'm happy to share a link Great. to that. Well, we'll too. put all of that in the text and on the episode itself. Again, I thank you very much for sharing your story. It is beautiful and profound. And congratulations on taking the leap. I think it's just incredible. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. Oh.